Today is Sunday, June 12, 2016. A childhood prank by two young sisters turns into a lifelong profession of talking to the dead, all controlled by an older sister. It's the story of the Fox sisters who started something that still goes on today. Here is their story on the 92nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, time for coffee, and I'm your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. Hey, are you going to eat those donuts? Seriously, I'll take one. I mean, you really don't look like you should be having all those calories. Anyway, you know you only have eight weeks left to enter the Coffee with Jeff mug contest? You want a chance to win a free Coffee with Jeff mug? Send me an email at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com saying I want to win a damn mug. We'll pick the winner on my 100th episode. Before we get started, I want to apologize for some sound issues we had on last week's show. It was nothing major, just some sound effects missing, but still, it has been corrected. And thanks to Brecky for pointing that out. And as Brecky said, the damage is done. Our listeners have already heard the broken version. Sorry about that, folks. You know, I'm not a believer that people can talk to the dead. Seances and such, I feel, are just a gimmick, a fraud, and and in some cases a harmful scam. These people prey on folks who are grieving over the loss of loved ones and, and who are looking for answers. One example was when, allegedly, psychic Sylvia Brown told a couple whose child had gone missing that he was dead and buried in the ground. But it turned out he was alive and kidnapped. In my opinion, it's a sickening scam for profit giving vulnerable people false comfort over their loss and keeping them from dealing with their loss in a real way. Anyway, today we're going to talk about seances and how they might have begun or at least been popularized by three women, the Fox sisters in the mid-19th century. Oh wait, we got some Bigfoot news. You know, I make fun of a lot of Bigfoot and extraterrestrial sightings on the segment, but I realize there are those who truly believe. Sometimes I feel a bit guilty over my poking fun. And every now and again, I attempt to explain why I'm a non-believer in these things, and always have felt that I have done a poor job in doing so. One podcast I really love is called Monster Talk, hosted by Blake Smith and Karen Solznow. It's presented by the Skeptic Society's Skeptic Magazine. The show critically examines the science behind cryptozoological creatures such as Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, werewolves, and the like. On their episode on May 25th, they had Dr. Eugenie Scott, who has an interest in Bigfoot. She did a wonderful job of explaining why it is highly unlikely that such a creature exists. In fact, she says all the things I've been trying to say for years and a lot more. So, like, if you've been flooded by all those pseudoscience shows on the History Channel, you know, those shows where these weekend warriors pretend to be doing science and are tracking down the legendary creature, and and now you're on the fence about Bigfoot and you'd like to know what a real scientist thinks and what the actual facts are, you might want to give the show a listen. I'll have a link to it on my show notes on the Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. 
But now, a story about the birth of the modern seance and the three sisters who were responsible. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. I will try to achieve a trance state. I'm falling deeper and deeper into a trance. Harry Catledge, give me a sign. Give us a sign. Harry, is that you, Harry? Spirit, signal us once for yes. You know how it works. People around a table at midnight holding hands. A medium communicates with the spirits of dead loved ones, usually telling the grieving people just what they want to hear. It's called a seance, and although I've never participated in one, I've seen them acted out in the movies, and I can only assume that's the way it really goes. Now, although the idea of communicating with the dead had been around since at least 1760, with the publication of Communications with the Other Side by George Littleton, it became very popular in the 19th century. Today's story is about three sisters who were probably not the first to make money with, with spiritualism, but were responsible for making it a worldwide phenomenon. These sisters were the Fox sisters, Leah, Margaret, and Kate. After a public demonstration of their powers on April 14, 1849 in Rochester, New York, they became famous all over America and began to tour the world, holding a series of public events. This is the story of a hoax, or a scam, but it's more than that. This is the story of the rise and fall of two young girls who achieved fame and success at an early age, and with that success were many of the pitfalls and trappings that are not much different from the pop stars of today. Alcoholism, betrayal, fighting, religious conversions, and confessions. It begins in 1848 in a little farmhouse in a town that doesn't exist anymore, Hydesville, New York. It most likely started as a game, just a bit of fun that quickly got out of hand. At night, a strange thumping could be heard throughout the home, and it was the product of two young sisters, 12-year-old Catherine, who was known as Katie, and 15-year-old Margaret, who was known as Maggie. Their mother became obsessed with the mysterious sounds, and it was her who put the idea into the girls' heads that the sounds could have been made by the spirits of the dead. Margaret confessed 40 years later, When we went to bed at night, we used to tie an apple to a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple onto the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Mother listened to this for a time. She did not understand it and did not suspect us at being capable of a trick because we were so young. Their mother was superstitious and quickly became convinced that the farmhouse was haunted but their father, a blacksmith, insisted that the sound came from loose boards or shutters that rattled in the night winds. On the night of March 31, 1848, they did a little demonstration for their mother. They named the spirit Mr. Splitfoot, and Mrs. Fox later explained, My youngest child, Kathy, said, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do, clapping her hands. 
the sound instantly followed her with the same number of raps. When she stopped, the sound ceased for a short time. Then Margareta said, in sport, no, do as I do, count one, two, three, four, striking one hand against the other at the same time. And the raps came as before. She was afraid to repeat them. Then Kathy said in her childish simplicity, Oh, mother, I know what it is. Tomorrow is April Fool's Day and somebody is trying to fool us. Now, perhaps the young girl's reference to April Fool's Day was because she felt a little guilty about fooling her mother, but admitting their game now would make a fool of her, especially when she began inviting the neighbors to witness the strange goings-on. First, they invited Mr. and Mrs. Redfield to their home, and then more and more people began to show up. The family, particularly the girls, had become local celebrities. Of course, there were no records of just what all the people in the town of Hydesville, New York, thought of the girls, but it appears that most of them trusted the two youngsters as being honest. And up till now, what they were doing was nothing more than a good prank, but what happened next goes beyond a game. You see, the folks around town thought that if there was a ghost in the house, there had to be a reason, and usually that reason was a murder. The people wanted to know the story, and the, the girls provided them with one. A peddler named Charles B. Rosna had been creating the banging. He had been murdered in the house and been buried in the basement. Upon hearing this, folks began digging up the basement, and it was said that they found a bit of hair and a few bones. The superstitious people pointed their fingers at a man named Bell. Maggie Fox, in her later years, explained... They were convinced that someone had been murdered in the house. They asked the spirits through us, and we would wrap one for the spirits' answer yes, not three as we did afterwards. The murder, they concluded, must have been committed in the house. They went over the whole surrounding country, trying to get the names of people who had formerly lived in the house. They finally found a man by the name of Bell, and they said that this poor innocent man had committed a murder in the house, and the noises that had come from the spirit of the murdered person. Poor Bell was shunned and looked upon by the whole community as a murderer. By now, the joke had gone way too far to turn back. Admitting now what they had been doing was nothing but a cruel prank would not only make a fool out of their mother and the neighbors as well, but who knows what kind of punishment they would suffer by the hands of their father. By now, crowds of strangers began coming to the farmhouse to meet with the girls and see a demonstration. Some looked at the girls with amazement, girls who were blessed with the ability to communicate with the dead, while others thought of them as tricksters or witches. The minister at the Methodist church which they belonged asked the Fox family to leave the congregation because of the girls' unholy practices. Now, much of this information comes from a pamphlet entitled A Report of the Mysterious Noises Heard in the House of John D. Fox in Hydesville, Arcadia, Wayne County. It was written by E.E. E. Lewis, who lived near the town. He had heard the stories of what was going on and quickly traveled to the town and began to interview the family and neighbors. According to Maggie, it would appear that E.E. E. Lewis exaggerated the story. Maggie said, Of course, I was so young that many incidents have escaped my memory. I assert positively, however, that much of the effect of the rapping is greatly exaggerated in the statements which my mother was made to write. 
I say that she was made to write them because the words of the statements, if not largely dictated by others in the first place, men who desired to make public the details of the wrapping and to make money by the sale of the pamphlet describing them, was afterwards grossly garbled, that it might be used for the dishonest purpose of the professional spiritualists. I am not ever certain that my mother ever signed the document. I'll have a link to the document on Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode if anybody would want to read it. Now, they had an older sister who was more than 20 years older than the other two. She was married and possibly divorced and lived in Rochester, New York, and had very little interaction with the family. Her name was Leah Fox Fish, and she had become fascinated in spiritualism after reading the best-selling book, The Divine Principles of Nature, by American spiritualist Andrew Jackson Davis. In the book, Davis told of how the dead were always making contact with the living. And then, once the pamphlet by E.E. Lewis reached Leah and she realized it was about her own family, she wanted to know more, and she quickly began traveling to Hydesville. By now, the family had moved out of the haunted house and were now living with the girl's older brother, David. According to the book, The Death Blow to Spiritualism, The True Story of the Fox Sisters by Reuben Briggs Davenport, Leo was cold and calculating and quickly found out the true nature of the sounds and made the girls show how they had created them. She wanted both girls to move into her home. Katie did, but Maggie stayed with her brother. Strangely, the rapping sounds followed them and now appeared in both homes. I find this whole part of the story about Leah's involvement a bit confusing. It would appear she came to her younger siblings ready to believe, but before long knew it was a hoax and wanted to capitalize on it. Maggie would later claim that she fully understood what was going on and acted more like the girl's publicist or manager. Leah claimed, at least in later years, that she also had the gift of talking to the dead. A Quaker couple, Amy and Isaac Post, who were longtime friends with the family, heard about the strange goings-on and invited the girls to their Rochester home. Amy and Isaac were heavily involved with the struggles for abolitionism and women's rights. In 1842, they founded the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society. But in 1848, with spiritualism really taking off in America, the posts were immediately convinced that the phenomena the girls were experiencing was genuine and began to spread the news to all their Quaker friends. A show was set up for the girls at Corinthian Hall in Rochester on November 14, 1849. The show was considered the first time a demonstration of spiritualism was held for a paying public. Of course, they couldn't use apples on a string like they had done at home, but this was later explained that Maggie and Kathy learned to make popping, cracking, and thumping sounds by cracking their knuckles of their toes or by snapping their big and second toes much like the snapping of fingers. Eventually, the girls became so adept at this that they performed the trick in stocking feet even while wearing shoes. The girls quickly became famous, well-known mediums, giving seances for hundreds of people, sometimes with just one of the young girls, sometimes both. They incorporated all the tricks that you might imagine. They were invited to do their stick in high social circles and for some very famous people of the time. According to Maggie, it was all under the demand of their older sister who threatened to expose them if they didn't do as she said. 
she and Katie were led around like lambs. And with their success, imitators began to follow in their footsteps. Usually, but not always, there were girls who were young and innocent looking, because only a pure soul could talk to the dead. With a talent for cold reading, a little research to those they were going to read, and a bit of trickery, it was easy to fool those who wanted to believe. Within a few years, hundreds of people claimed the ability to communicate with the dead. Sometime during their fame, both girls began to drink wine. Was this due to help cover up the guilt for doing what they were doing? Who knows? But they began this fakery at such a young age, one could only imagine how confused they were. It might be comparable to the childhood stars of today who have a hard time growing up and often turn to drink or drugs to cope. In 1852, Maggie met Dr. Elijah Kent Kane, an Arctic explorer. He was 32 years old at the time when he met the sisters, and Maggie was 19. The two fell in love. He also believed that the girls were frauds and began a quest to reform Maggie. Yet he couldn't find out how they were making the sounds. He said, After a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them. Therefore, they are a great mystery. Most accounts of the Fox sisters say that Kent and Maggie were married in 1865. Maggie began attending school at Kane's insistence and his expense, but unfortunately, Kane died on February 16, 1875. And to honor him, she converted to Catholicism and vowed to wholly and forever abandon spiritualism. And it has also been reported that she began drinking heavily at this time. Now, while Maggie turned away from the family business, Katie kept improving on her medium powers, inventing new ways to amaze people, like communicating two messages at the same time, one spoken and one written, and to make apparitions appear in the room. And business for the younger sister couldn't have been better once the American Civil War began. Many people were desperate to hear how their lost loved ones were doing on the other side, the bereaved finding solace in spiritualism. Katie, like her sister, also began to drink heavily. But as the years went on, the public's interest in spiritualism began to wane, and her performances began to worsen by her drinking problems. Her audiences began to shrink. In 1871, she traveled to England and began performing there, and she did achieve some success. While in England, she ended up getting married and eventually had two sons. Things were really looking up for the youngest of the sisters, but that changed when her husband died, and she fell into financial ruin. She moved back to the States with her kids. Leah took her two sons from her because of her heavy drinking. The two sisters, Katie and Maggie, who all began this as kids with an apple, joined forces in 1888, mainly out of anger over their older sister. On October 21, 1888, the New York World published an interview with Maggie and announced on that evening she would speak at the New York Academy of Music and publicly denounce spiritualism. Some claim that the only reason she did this was because she was desperate for the $1,500 she was paid, but the real reason was because of Leah. As Maggie talked on stage, Katie sat in a box, often nodding in agreement over the story her sister told. 
My sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began, Maggie said. At night when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple onto the floor, making a strange noise every time it rebounded. She explained that they learned to manipulate their knuckles, joints, and toes to make the rapping sounds. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that spirits are touching them. It's a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street, and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirits rap on the chair, and one of the ladies cried out, I feel spirits tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, it was pure imagination. She went on to talk about how her older sister, Leah, would feed them information about the people who were participating in the seances, and the goal was to use the girls to start a new religion. Katie told the New York Herald on October 9, 1888, I regard spiritualism as one of the greatest curses the world has ever known. The spiritualism world was outraged, not because the sisters were frauds, but because they were giving away so many of the secrets of the trade. They did everything in their power to denounce the sisters, calling them sick and deluded. Now, however, even after this performance, Katie continued with spiritualism, and a few years later, Maggie recanted her confession and began to work as a medium once again. This was most likely for financial reasons, as both were broke and desperate. But it was too late. The damage was done. Their new act never took off. Within five years, all three sisters would be dead. Both Maggie and Katie were living in complete poverty. Maggie never reconciled with her sister Leah, who died in 1890. Katie died two years later while on a drinking spree, and Maggie passed away eight months after that in March 1893. This is the voice of the uninvited. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. A house of terror on the haunted cliffs of Cornwall, where the uninvited walk unseen by men. Yet a cat arches its back in fright. (coughs) Flowers are withered by the touch of an unseen malignant hand. Candles flicker and die as a ghostly chill fills the air, and the living are clutched by the icy horror of the restless dead. Stop, Pamela. Don't go near that door. Oh, I got Stop her, Scott. Shh. She's in a trance. I saw this happen once before at a seance. I thought it was a fake. But this isn't. I know. It's dangerous. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. One interesting follow-up to the story is that the small farmhouse that the Fox sisters grew up in became known as the Spook House. In 1904, one of the walls collapsed and some children playing in the home discovered a skeleton. When a doctor examined the bones, he concluded that they were 50 years old. Many people who had not given up hope that the sisters were genuine gave this credence to the tale of the murdered peddler. Even though the bones were found in the wall and not in the floor of the basement, anyway... It was five years later that another doctor examined the skeleton and determined that it was made up of 
only a few ribs with odds and ends of bones, and among them a superabundance of some and a deficiency of others. Among them were also some chicken bones. He reported a rumor that a man living in the area of the spook house had planted the bones as a practical joke, but was much too ashamed to come clean. There's still people who believe in the Fox sisters. Just do a Google search. You'll find a couple of articles by the Smithsonian Magazine, History.net, and Wikipedia, all of which, I should say, were used in the telling of today's tale. But the rest of them are from spiritualist sites and such. And even with the confessions of the girls, they take the story as if there was something much more to it than just a bunch of fakery. Like, they'll mention the skeleton being found in the house years later, but they won't mention the fact that it included chicken bones. And the gimmicks the sisters used are still used today. Just look at superstar psychic medium John Edwards, for instance. And I should say that just in case the lawyers for John Edwards are listening, that's just my opinion. Anyway, if you want to know how these things work, just look up cold reading and confirmation bias. Both are big players in the spiritualist game. And now, the ending credits. Have I ever mentioned that it costs money to run a podcasting network? Of course I have. And you should think about becoming a supporter of the show at our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm for more information. And sincerely, to all of you who already support the show, thank you so much. And speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. This week on Moving On, Toreg and Brecky talk about one of my favorite films, Blazing Saddles. And did I mention that I'm going to a screen of the film tonight with a question and answer session by Mel Brooks himself? Anyway, that's not important. Check out Moving On. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say, hi, Jeff, feel free. I always answer every email. And don't forget to enter the contest to win a mug. You know, you can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're encouraged to enjoy. And your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show, but you don't have the coin to help financially, and that's something I do understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a good review, won't you? Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources I use to write the story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You will always have a special place in my heart. Thank you so much. Until next week, bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks 